Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM Sports account to get started. Then visit your promotion section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. You'll score a prize if you hit a single, double, triple, or home run. There's nothing more exciting than going yard. So swing for the fences with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on the market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, March 12th, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be gathering around the virtual water cooler and talking about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I am the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's podcast by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer is Y. Trent Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. So Peter is out today, but he should be back on Monday. So let's get into it, guys. What have we been doing? Jacob, uh, you have some good news, right? Yeah, yeah. This week I got my second vaccine shot. And as I was warned, I felt like crap for 24 hours. Uh, but then I feel fine today. And I'm not saying like, you know, we're out of the woods, of course. I'm not saying I'm going to start being irresponsible. Uh, but I am saying that it was overall not a painful experience it was overall something that i'm glad is becoming more frequent and hopefully easier and i look forward to everybody listening to this podcast getting their two shots or their one of the johnson and johnson and i i just i finally see the light at the end of the tunnel uh it's a really powerful feeling is it does it feel like a huge weight has been lifted off your shoulders yeah, I mean, I still need to be responsible. I know this. And last time I talked about this podcast, I got a bunch of people who don't even follow me on social media making sure to mention to me, make sure you still follow the rules. And yes, I know. Yes, I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's the fact that the CDC says vaccinated people can, you know, 
uh, safely gather. It's a huge weight off my chest. It, I, I'm like, my wife's birthday is next month, for God's sake. When this and we had to cancel her, her birthday last year, so I'm looking forward to like vaccinating friends and family, being able to gather and like let her celebrate her damn birthday. It was mm-hmm. a, a little thing. Like I didn't realize how much I would miss birthdays, being able to see my friends for, for the excuse of her birthday. You know, and yeah. this past year has rewired us in a lot of significant ways, and I'm looking forward to awkwardly stumbling back into being a social being in the months ahead. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's going to be uh, quite the process for for all of us. But I'm glad that you got your second uh, vaccine, Jacob. That's that's really awesome news. Um, Brad, you uh, you've not received your vaccine yet. It sounds like that's something you want to talk about. Uh, yeah, this is. I'm very happy that Jacob was been able to get the vaccine. But here in Indiana, things are dog shit. Uh, the the rollout of the vaccine here has been absolutely terrible. Right now, they're only at the area where it's people 50 and under, and then certain comorbidities and like people with uh, certain medical ailments who are allowed to get it. And so, so 50 and over, sorry. Yeah. 50 and over. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So people 50 and over are able to get it. They it's, you know, it's opened up to teachers now because of, you know, what Joe Biden has been doing, not because of what our governor was doing. Cause he's been treating teachers uh, and school employees like, like trash when it comes to allowing them to get the vaccine. And it's just getting, it's getting really frustrating because we have, you have people here that are ready to take the vaccine and it's just taking too long to get it out, you know, and so, um, you know, I'm, I'm a bigger guy. And, you know, it's something where it's more of a concern to because I'm, I'm being very safe, but I we're getting in the home stretch, and I don't want to get it because it can be dangerous for people who, um, who are overweight. And so that's supposed to be a thing that allows you to get the vaccine faster, but apparently not here in Indiana, where everything is fucked. Um, so yeah, hoping it starts to go faster now that the supply is becoming more plentiful, and that Hopefully they'll start moving through the age brackets a lot quicker, but just very anxious to get this so that I just can worry a little bit less. I want to feel the joy that Jacob is feeling. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, for you sure. Know, Brad, um, a friend of mine who's also in a similarly frustrating position learned that uh, Walgreens, if you call them or, or contact them, it, it's different for different locations, we can push you on a list for um, – if they get re- if they reach the end of the day and people didn't show up and have excess vaccines and, they, and they'd rather throw them away, they'll call people on this list. So I would recommend doing that. We, we did hear about this at one location um, at a, a grocery store chain here that's doing that. And so I, I didn't hear that Walgreens was also doing that because last weekend I had called several like Walgreens and CVSs and some of them actually hadn't even received their vaccine supply yet. And so that might have changed this week. Um, so I was going to try and make some calls again to, to see if I can do that. So that's, that's good to know that some of the pharmacies are, are also doing that that like uh, leftover doses they're giving to people. So I'll have to look into that. And just to like mark this moment in time, I think it was uh, last night that uh, the president said that all states are basically going to make uh, all adults eligible for the vaccine by May 1st. So that's um, sooner than I think a lot of us thought that that the overall rollout would be because it's all, you know, up until this point has been in the, the individual state's hands. And as Brad has mentioned, in some states, it's been going way worse than others. So I'm glad that we're going to have some sort of a leadership from the top and, and hopefully it will smooth this thing out and, and actually, um, you know, get a bunch of shots into arms very quickly. So yes. can I say one more thing? Yes. Uh, the first shot I got t- took me 20 minutes from the moment I arrived to when I left practically. The second time it took me 90 minutes. More and more people are, are getting access. More and more people are able to do it. There are more shots in arms every day. It's amazing uh, that's ramped up this much. So this is my way of just saying, I don't think the slash film audience would be jerks. But remember, these are volunteers and doctors doing their best. So if there's a long wait, be kind, be polite. And remember, this is we're all in this together. Yes, yes, well said. 
Um, Brad, do you have anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, so uh, I, one thing I just wanted to say is uh, I just wanted to say uh, thank you to um, any readers and listeners out there um, who reached out to me after you know I talked about uh, just what I've been going through since January 31st. Um, if, if anyone hadn't listened, uh, my dad passed away at the end of January, and it's been a pretty tough situation. It gets you know the the slightest amount better um, you know every day, but obviously other days are still hard and uh, there's just a lot to deal with as I've talked about before. But um, I had a lot of very nice and just compassionate readers and listeners reach out to me via email and on, on Twitter and, um, and whatnot, just expressing their condolences, sharing their own personal stories of people that they've lost either years ago or during the past year because of COVID or various other uh, illnesses. And it's, it certainly helped just to feel a little less alone and just know like a lot of people are, you know, going through these similar things and just offering their own perspective and advice and stuff that was uh, very helpful. So if you're one of those people, thank you very much for reaching out. It was um, immensely helpful. And uh, I, I respond, I'm, if I missed responding to you, I, I hope I didn't because there were a lot of emails that come in, but I'm pretty sure I was able to respond to each and every one of you. And if I didn't, I apologize. I am, I'm sorry. Just know that I did see, see it. Um, and some people had asked if there was um, a way to help my family and a close family friend of ours actually just recently set up a GoFundMe. So if you would like to contribute it in some way, you know, it's um, it's just to, mostly just to help my mom during this difficult situation. And so uh, you can find a link to that on on my Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. And it was also tweeted out through the Slash Film account. So if you're able to contribute in some way, I, it would, it's we would be eternally grateful for that. Um, you know, it's just... Uh, it's a tough time. So any, anything, anything helps. Yeah. I'll put that uh, link in the show notes for this page too. So people can find it super easy that way. Um, all right, great. Uh, so let's go into what we've been reading. I recently read Killers of the Flower Moon, the Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI, which is written by uh, David Gran and is soon being turned into a movie directed by Martin Scorsese and starring Jesse Plemons, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Robert De Niro. Um, Chris and Jacob, I think, have both read this book, and uh, I was interested in it. My wife actually got it because she's... Um, she was interested in the in the topic, the subject matter as well. Um, really fascinating stuff, and you know, I, I don't think I'd ever even heard of the Osage people, let alone that they were you know some of the most wealthy people in this entire country in the early 1920s because of the oil deposits that were found on the land that they were essentially like forced onto. Um, but man, just like a really fascinating blend of history and um, terrible, terrible murders and the confluence of these events and and as the subtitle indicates, the birth of the FBI, the, the sort of rise of J. Edgar Hoover and, and um, his whole organization and sort of the, the nationalization of um, policing and, and all of these topics sort of come together in this kind of amazing story. Um, Chris, I remember you saying that you enjoyed the subject matter, but you were not necessarily a fan of like the way that this book was written. And I'm curious if you, now that I've read the book and can personally benefit from understanding a little bit more of what you're talking about, if you could elaborate on that just a little bit. I don't know. It's weird, man. Cause I really like David Grant's book. Um, he, he, I forget what it, I think it's going to call like the devil and Sherlock Holmes. He has this book of essays That's the one. and that book is so fucking good. It's like one of the, my, one of the best books I've ever read. So I like his writing and I really found this subject matter fascinating, fascinating. Cause like you, Ben, I didn't really know anything about this and I, I can't wait for the movie. Cause I love me some Martin Scorsese, but I don't know, just something about the book didn't hook me. And I, I, 
I'm, I'm probably going to go back and reread it before the movie comes out just so it's more, it's fresher in my memory and maybe I'll, I'll like it more the second time, but just something about it when I read it, it just, I was like, I should be enjoying this, but I'm not. And I can't figure out why. So I don't know if it was just like, I don't know, maybe I was in a weird mood when I was reading it. I don't know, but I just hmm. didn't love it. So uh, I will say that um, I, you know, I, I knew that you didn't love the writing going into it. So I don't, I don't I have no idea if that colored my perception of reading this book or not. But I, I really like you liked the subject matter a lot. But I found it a little bit difficult to um, grasp onto some of the characters. There was this really huge ensemble of players in this story, and I think a movie version is going to work way better because especially for some of these lower level players in this story, um, Grand does the thing where he'll like introduce a character and then, you know, pages and pages and pages, maybe even chapters later, that person will, you know, come back in and crisscross in through the narrative again. And Grand just sort of like mentions them by last name and that's it. And like, you're supposed to I mean, I guess this makes it sound like I'm some sort of idiot who has no, uh, who is not able to like retain information, but I don't know. I just found it because of the, the sprawling nature of the story. I found it a little bit difficult to track some of these people and be like, wait a second, who is that? And that's the kind of thing that I think will work really, you know, way better in movie form where it's like, oh, it's that actor again. I I think that's, that's dead on Ben. And I also think David Grant as great a writer is, is he has a tendency to like, uh, get lost in the weeds, I guess. Like he's so interested in like filling in the blanks and like, here's the, like he goes off on these, these like tangents that really aren't really related to the main story. They're more like a history lesson. And mm-hmm. like, while that's fascinating, a part of me is like, man, get back to the, the story. That's what yeah. I'm, I'm here for. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jacob, uh, has it been a while since you've read this? Is any of this uh, ringing any bells for you? What What was your experience like reading the book? Did you um, have a better uh, a better reading experience than Chris and I did? Uh, you both are crazy. This book's great. Uh, <laughs> David Grant is the uh, best uh, writer of nonfiction, uh, or at least, at least non-entertainment nonfiction uh, alive today. I think everything he's written has been outstanding. I, in fact, I just finished reading a novella-length article of his from 2001. That's how far back from him I enjoy reading. Um, yeah, I just, it's a straight-up disagreement. I did not have any of the issues <laughs> you guys have. I have I, I like the tangents. I was able to follow the storytelling just fine. Uh, but I will say that The Devil in Sherlock Holmes, his collection of uh, shorter uh, essays and uh, investigations, is one of the top ten best books I have ever read. So definitely read that one before you read Killers wow. of the Flower Moon. All right. Well, I mean, with such a with such high praise from both you and Chris, I'm definitely adding that to my list. So, uh, okay, uh, that is all I've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading? I started reading Mark Harris's uh, Mike Nichols biography uh, titled "Mike Nichols: A Life," and it's not that I am especially a. I would not normally set out to read a Mike Nichols biography. He, he's best known for film fans for directing movies like The Graduate, for which he won the Oscar. Uh, like the Birdcage, Charlie Wilson's War, but he also is was a Grammy award-winning uh, comedian and sketch artist. He was uh, he directed a lot of television, won Emmys. He was uh, one one of the most lauded stage directors of all time. He, I think he won like nine or ten Best Director Tonys. And I did not realize I would be as interested in Mike Nichols until I started reading this book. And that's because Mark Harris, he's up there with David Graham. <laughs> he's one of the best writers of nonfiction alive today. And I think because he got to start as, as a film journalist writing for entertainment weekly he understands how stories work so he his his work always has a cinematic flair to it he always hooks you in the right ways he builds character and drama in ways that 
really complement the material. And this is his third book. His first book, uh, Pictures at a Revolution, and his second book, Five Came Back, are both two of the best entertainment journalistic books I have ever read. And so far, uh, not too deep into Mike Nichols' into Mike Nichols' biography, but deep enough to realize that, oh, this is a great book. And it's so funny. I just finished reading True Believer, the Stanley biography, uh, where the writer has to play detective constantly because Stanley's life was so full of uh, half-truths and misstatements and lies, whereas there's an overabundance of Mike Nichols stories. There's so much truth out there about him, but from himself and his friends and collaborators, so much that Mark Harris has been sharing cut stories from the book on his Twitter over the past few weeks. Uh, so Mike Nichols, a life, if, if you're vaguely interested in comedy, Broadway film, and what it's like for somebody to be one of the most lauded figures in all those worlds for, for upwards of half a century, it's a really fascinating, incredible read. Jacob, how far are you into this book? About 100 pages. Please let me know when you get to the chapter on Wolf, because I'm dying to know <laughs> more about Mike Nichols's Wolf, the werewolf movie with Jack Nicholson that Mike yeah, Nichols I'm, made. I'm still in the in the uh, 50s and early 60s where he's a comedy duo with Elaine May. He, so he's, he's a long way to Wolf. There's not, like a part, there's not a part where young Mike Nichols is like, one day I'm going to make a werewolf movie. Oh, it is hilarious. So like how, how it's like, oh, it's far as Gumpy and, and the number of like massive American stage film television characters pop up throughout Mike Nichols' early life. Like so-and-so pops up and I'll say, and he will go on to found Second City. And I'm like, what? And he's like, <laughs> Mike Nichols' old college buddy. So it's just like, uh, but yeah, I'm, I would not be surprised if young Jack Nicholson pops up at this rate, Chris. <laughs> Or if he actually meets a wolf. Yeah, he meets a real werewolf. (laughs) And he says, one day you'll tell my story, Mike Nichols. (laughs) All right, uh, let's get into what we've been watching. I've only been watching one thing, and that is uh, a 1937 screwball comedy called The Awful Truth, which stars uh, Irene Dunn and Cary Grant. And this was on AMC the other day, and I... Uh, DVR'd it and just watched this last night. And it's um, mostly enjoyable. Like many movies from this period, it just abruptly ends, um, which is definitely something that if you watch a lot of movies from the, let's call it 30s to the late 50s, um, that's just sort of like how it goes with with a lot of movies from this period where they just, you know, they they get in, they tell their story, and then there is just no um, come down period. And it just, it, it is an abrupt, just the, the door slams closed and the end pops up on the screen. And that's very much what happens here. Um, but the premise is uh, Cary Grant and Irene Dunn play a married couple who are sort of distrustful of each other. They, they think that the other one is uh, cheating on them and um, they start to suspect and and wonder what's going on and they decide to get a divorce and uh, there's this period in uh, I guess I, I'm not sure if this is actually how it really works uh, or if this is just a, a construct for this movie but there's the divorce is not finalized for 90 days um, once they like sign the paperwork or whatever so in this 90 day period they each you know uh, encounter these other love interests and it turns out that they still have feelings for each other so they're trying to thwart these uh, newfound romances and, and eventually sort of realize that they still love each other the whole time. So it's, it's um, you know, full of, of sort of crazy uh, uh, side characters and, and miscommunications and uh, all of the things that you expect from a, a screwball comedy from the late 30s. Um, it, it's not one of my favorite ones, but uh, it's still mostly enjoyable. So, um, it, you know, I, I, would, I would give it a, a loose recommend. Um, uh, uh, what is his name? Uh, Ralph Bellamy, who uh, 
appeared in His Girl Friday and a bunch of other things. Um, he plays uh, Irene Dunn's new love interest in the movie. And my wife and I were watching this and like everything that Bellamy was doing in this movie, we were just like, <laughs> we were almost like standing up and booing the screen because we did not uh, appreciate his performance and what, you know, all the choices that he was making. He's this like Southern guy from Oklahoma who actually has a bunch of oil money and like his accent is terrible. And his, he's just like a wet blanket of a character. And then afterwards, um, I think it was Alicia Malone who was doing the uh, the TCM sort of bookends that happen sometimes when you watch movies on that uh, network where they sort of provide some context and stuff like that. And she was saying that Ralph Bellamy got an Oscar nomination for this. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> I mean, that is just uh, completely baffling after watching that movie and just thinking that that was a lauded performance for that era. But um, yeah, so a little bit of a disconnect there. And then the one other thing that I just wanted to mention really quickly is uh, the director, Leo McCary. Um, evidently was uh, sort of a pioneer in, in, or maybe not a full pioneer, but uh, was doing something that Judd Apatow would popularize, popularize many, many, many years later, which was like in- encouraging um, improvisation on the set. This movie has actually been, it's based on a play and it, it had actually, by the time this film was made, been made twice before. So I guess in an effort to sort of like switch things up and just like liven up the story a little bit, uh, McCary would encourage Dunn and Grant and, and the rest of the cast to uh, improvise on, on you know, during the takes. And that was something that evidently Cary Grant was not thrilled with. He was like not uh, confident uh, in his abilities in that department at that point in his career. I think he was only like 33 years old when he was making this movie. Um, but he did, I mean, he, it, it does not seem like he is uh, stilted or anything like that. It, it all flows together pretty well. But I just um, was sort of fascinated to hear that like even in the late 30s, that kind of improvisational style, which I so closely associate with Apatow and like the early 2000s era of filmmaking was happening, you know, decades and decades and decades ago. So um, just a little interesting note there. All right. Uh, that is all I have been watching. Um, Chris, what about you? Uh, I watched Weathering With You, which is a anime film, and I don't usually watch anime. So everyone, please hold your applause. <laughs> yeah. What happened here? How did, how did right, this so, happen? So here's the story about why I watched this. I was on, I was online as I frequently am too much. And I saw someone post a screenshot of this artwork, uh, this, this drawing, this sketch, whatever you want to call it, this, this visual of a McDonald's and it's a McDonald's. It's a shot from weathering with you. And the, it was so like ridiculously gorgeous looking. I was like, holy shit, why is this drawing of a McDonald's so beautiful? And I didn't even say where it was from. I had to like reverse image search it. And it said it was a, a screenshot from Weathering With You. And I saw this was on HBO Max. And I was like, God damn it, I'm going to watch this because this this is such a, a beautiful drawing. And uh, I don't know how I feel about the movie. <laughs> the movie itself is a little iffy. Uh, I, I just didn't really vibe with it, I guess. And to be clear, I watched the, like the English dub version because that's the one that immediately sort of playing and I was too lazy to check and see if the original version was on there. So maybe it's better in the original language, but uh, I didn't like love it plot wise, but man, it's visually just incredible. Like the most mundane things, like just like a drawing of like a desk or an office building, like stuff that, you know, wouldn't look beautiful in real life, just looks visually stunning in this film. So uh, on you know from from a purely artistic standpoint i was like wow this looks great but i didn't like love 
the movie. So there you have it. That, that's the one thing that got me to finally watch anime is a drawing of McDonald's. So thank you, someone, <laughs> whoever posted that. I just think it's it's really funny. This is this is a film directed by Makoto Shinkai, who directed Your Name, the really big anime hit from however many years ago now uh, that Ben really loves and that I think turned a lot of people onto anime films in general outside of Studio Ghibli. And Weathering With You is his follow-up, which was highly anticipated and kind of a disappointment. So it's kind of funny that this is your first <laughs> Makoto Shinkai film and not his much more famous, much more well-regarded one. Yes. that's that. If that were on HBO Max, I would watch it, but it's not. So I was stuck with this. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. <laughs> It, uh, it, I, I, all the work I've been doing, and this is what gets you to watch anime. Whatever, it's fine. <laughs> it's McDonald's versus HD. Look, HD. If you had just shown me that drawing of McDonald's, it would have happened sooner. But <laughs> uh, all right, what else have you been watching, Chris? Uh, I watched a glitch in the Matrix, which is a documentary you mentioned watching a while ago, Ben. And oh man, I don't know how I feel about this. This is. This has a fascinating topic, and it's 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 about people who believe we're living in a simulation. And I was I'm frankly shocked that you even watched this, Chris, because like it just seems like a a topic that would um that would turn you off so so hard. No, I I I think the topic is fascinating, and uh, you know I like the you know the idea of exploring it. But God damn it, I I hate the way this documentary approaches it. First first of all. I don't know if I'm just becoming like an old man or what, but this movie is way too fucking loud. There's no reason for a documentary to be this loud and in your face. Like there's constant just noise and, and this, this soundtrack that's just like booming. And uh, there's all this like bullshit going on where it's like every, uh, for some reason, everyone who's interviewed is, is represented by this, like CGI avatar. And I guess, you know, that's to make it like, Oh, we're living in the matrix. And it's like, Oh, I hate it. It was driving me fucking insane. Like it would, it would like cut to a guy and he's like represented by this like weird space alien with his with a brain in a jar. And I'm just like, why is everything in this movie? So extreme. It was like, so in your face, it was like, it, it was the equivalent of like someone like screaming this topic to you in your ear. Like you're like someone literally like grabbing you by the shoulders and being like, Hey, I'm going to tell you about hysteria. And it's just like, I was like, ah, <laughs> I hate this. So I, I want someone to tackle this theory in a better, more subdued way. Cause I, I didn't need it to be. Am I crazy, Ben? Do you think this movie was like as in your face as I'm making it sound? Like it, it really felt like someone was like, hitting me over the head for like two hours it kind of felt like um rodney asher the director didn't feel like the topic was enough on its own so he had to do all this extra stuff to make it right i guess interesting for people and i think he i think he misjudges that i think if you turn on this movie you are interested in like you're inherently interested in the topic and then yeah, like you said, that there's there's so much like style on top of it that um, a lot of that didn't really work for me, but it, it didn't bother me quite as much as it sounds like it, it sort of irked you. But um, but yeah, I had my own like issues with that I talked about at length, like especially with the, like the last half of the movie, like that whole part about the the guy in the Matrix, um, you know, like the being influenced by the music and the murders of his family and all that kind of stuff. I, I was just not like a, a huge fan of the way that the film presented that, but. What did you make of that section of the movie? I mean, I, I kind of wanted like a whole movie about that 
and but again done in a better because it's like he, he recreates the murders with like yeah. CGI. And I was like, this seems in very poor taste. I don't know. You know, <laughs> and, and for the record, I, I like documentaries that try stuff, something new, because so many documentaries feel like they're made on like an assembly line these days where it's like, you know, you got drone shots of an establishing place. And then it's people talking head interviews where everyone's sitting in front of a, a neutral background and. Uh, and then there are archival footage and it's Don't like- Don't forget the the photo of the happy family that suddenly turned into a negative. Yes. And like <laughs> the camera will slowly zoom in on the, that, that photo. You know, it's so many documentary. It's basically like the Ken Burns style and Ken Burns, you know, it's like Ken Burns and, um, you know, Ken Burns sort of like, he didn't invent it, but he popularized it. And everyone was like, we need to make our documentaries look like this. And it's like, no, you can do- exciting and different things with documentaries you know Mm -hmm. i'm all for that idea but but this was like a bridge too far for me i just i wanted to tell this movie to calm down basically (laughs) it was like this movie needs to ease up a little because it's driving me fucking insane maybe that's the point maybe it's to make me wake up and realize i too am living in the matrix (laughs) so i think this movie is available for people to rent right now right yeah i i I reached out to get a screener of it because I can do that because I'm special. But yeah, I think you can rent it on VOD. Okay. So that's called a glitch in the matrix. Right. Um, what else have you been watching, Chris? Yeah. Uh, uh, and finally, so Disney Plus finally added the original Muppet show. And I was like, oh boy, I'm excited because I love the Muppets. And I rewatched some episodes and, you know, they hold up. They're funny. They're charming. But I have this this pet peeve, if you will, that I really can't stomach laugh tracks especially if they're you know canned laugh tracks and the muppet show is like wall-to-wall canned laughter where it's just like ha 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 and i can't as much as i love the muppets just re-watching it now i was just like irked and it, it's like to the point where it's 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 so prevalent that it's it's just distracting. There's even like an episode, like I watched the Steve Martin episode where Steve Martin is hosting. And the premise of that episode is Kermit like sends the Muppet show audience home. He literally sends them home because they have to do like tryouts for new Muppets on the show. And even though they literally show a shot of the audience leaving, they keep the audience laugh track going through the whole episode. And I was like, who, who's supposed to be laughing? Right. I was like, I was like, and I know this is like such a stupid thing to get hung up on. And I should just be like, I should ignore it and enjoy the Muppets, but I just, I, my, my brain won't let me. I'm, I'm just like, who's laughing right now? This is, uh, uh, I don't like it. So <laughs> I love that this sent you into an existential spiral. It just, it really bothered me. So Disney of course has a bunch of other Muppet stuff and I'd already watched all the other Muppet movies. So first I tried watching Muppets now, which was like the newer one they did. And I couldn't get through it because they have a new, new guy voicing Kermit and his voice is like really deep. And that too distracted me. So I also saw they had the the Muppets show that aired on ABC for one season and it got canceled. And I was like, all right, I'll watch this. And I actually managed to get through all of this. And um, for those who don't know what this is, it's basically like The Office or, you know, Parks and Rec, but with the Muppets. It's got that, you know, that, that, that Fox documentary style where the Muppets look at the camera and they dress the camera and stuff like that. And, uh, I know a lot of people didn't like this. I thought it was fine. Honestly, I didn't, you know, it's not like great Muppet material, but I'm, I just like the Muppets so much. I just like watching them do stuff. So I had fun watching this, this in general. One thing I will say is 
this this show makes a big deal of pointing out that like all the Muppets are sexually active. <laughs> that made me like really uncomfortable. Like I'm not a prude by any chance stretch, but like the Muppets talking about their sex life made me really like, I was just like, this is, I don't, I don't like this. I don't care for the Muppets talking about how they have sex. So <laughs> that's, that's where I stand on the Muppets ABC series. There's, there's too much sex talk. If you ask me. Okay. Uh, all right, Brad, let's go to you. What have you been watching? Uh, I watched Coming to America, Coming the Number Two America, the sequel uh, that's available on Amazon Prime. Um, I am a huge fan of the original Coming to America. It's a movie that I uh, grew up watching, probably saw it too young uh, just because my parents were awesome. And I love that movie. It still holds up to this day. And so I was very interested to see how this turned out, especially because it's a PG-13 sequel while the original was rated R. And um, even though the, the the original is, you could say, relatively tame for R rating, there's a little bit of nudity in it and there are some F-bombs, but it's not like a super raunchy affair necessarily. And uh, I was honestly pretty pleased to see that Coming to America mostly works. It's still pretty funny, not as funny as the original it's really fun to see everybody back as these characters. Um, the new characters all work pretty well. Um, I, I really like Jermaine Fowler um, as the the new, I guess, co-lead. Uh, he plays Lavelle, who is uh, Eddie Murphy's uh, character's bastard son that he finds out he has in New York. Um, the explanation for as to you know, how he has this son, despite having such a sweeping romance uh, in the first movie, um, is, is amusing and, and it works. The one thing that I felt like was lacking a little bit is I wasn't fully convinced of the chemistry um, between Jermaine Fowler's character and his love interest that he ends up finding in uh, in Zamunda, uh, which is where most of the movie takes place. Um, it just felt like they tried to push the romance too quickly, and I didn't feel like a spark uh, be- between them. But it was it was a small complaint in a movie that I was otherwise really satisfied with. The there are plenty of callbacks and. Um, they didn't feel super forced to me. They felt like they were very well done. There are a lot of uh, great surprise cameos that I wasn't expecting. I won't spoil those here because they're just fun to experience yourself. And I, I was just surprised by how well this this worked. Normally, you know, like you have comedies like this that revisit a movie, you know, years, sometimes decades later, like Dumb and Dumber 2, and they just don't feel right. And while this one uh, at times doesn't feel quite as, as polished, uh, as the as the original, I think that it was it was very satisfying for the most part, and I walked away having having a lot of fun with it. Cool. So uh, I guess one question, Brad, not to drag this out too long, but like comedy uh, was so different when the first Coming to America came out than it is now. Like uh, it sounds like the story worked for you. H- how did the comedy work in this one for you? Were they able to sort of did it feel of a piece or did it feel separate, but it still worked? Like what, what's your take on that? Um, it's, it's not as edgy. Um, it's, it's definitely a little more family friendly, but it doesn't necessarily lose its teeth. Any, um, I would say, um, but it's, yeah, I was, I would say that they, they don't like touch as much as the, uh, the same, I guess, edgy material as the, the original did, but they, they fit in a lot of, of good gags just because of how, you know, fun the new cast is because Leslie Jones and Tracy Morgan are are part of it, and um, yeah, it's it's it feels a little bit different, but not so much that it feels removed from from the original. Cool. Uh, what else have you been watching? I also watched uh, Raya and the Last Dragon. Uh, I finally got around to watching this um, on on Disney Plus, uh, and this was uh, a really good fantasy adventure. Um, I, I like the message at its core. I think the animation is stunning. The action sequences, in particular. 
this is some of the coolest uh, action that I've seen in an animated movie like this ever. Like the the, the sword fights between the uh, um, the two lead characters are just just incredible. I, I I haven't looked around to see if there's like some kind of making of feature about uh, the choreography for this or you know um, what they did as far as like planning the animation or anything like that. But uh, I was really impressed by these sequences. It has like a an Indiana Jones uh, feel, a little bit of like Mad Max here and there. Um, but, and like, it's just, uh, I found myself enjoying it a lot. And one thing I was, I was talking to my, my girlfriend about this actually. And like the message of the movie, like a lot of Disney movies is fairly idealistic. And I found myself having trouble wondering, like if it's maybe too idealistic because at its core, it's about, you know, finding trust in people and, um, despite your differences and letting giving people a second chance and like allowing them to redeem themselves. And I love that message as at its core for sure. But relating it to things that have been happening in recent years, I feel like there's the potential for the message to maybe be a little muddled because there are some people who have differences of what you could call opinion but I feel like, no, there's no way I'm going to trust that person to do the right thing ever. Um, and I'm pretty sure we all know the kind of people that, that, we're, that we're talking about. And so I, while I appreciate the sentiment that is at the core of, of this movie, and it's, it's this idea of just like not judging people because of their background and not instilling or understanding that ideas are instilled upon people because of their who, how they were raised and their, their background and that kind of thing. And that includes who they mistrust and who they, how they look upon people. I found myself having a little bit of a disconnect with the overall message about like giving certain people like, like a, a, a level of trust and, and redemption. And has anybody else seen Raya and like uh, understand like what I'm getting at? <laughs> I yeah. am very glad that you mentioned this because I wanted to, and I just completely blanked on it when we were talking about it, whenever that was last week or the week before. Um, but Chris, it sounds like this resonated with you as well, right? No, yeah, I, I, I don't want to like pair everything Brad said, but I, I, even though I like this movie, I do agree with that assessment that some some people, you know, some people just aren't trustworthy. Just <laughs> like, look, I know, you know, I'm. <laughs> I am a uh, a misanthrope, and I, I don't. I, I think the worst of of pretty much everything and everyone. So I'm probably not the person you should ask about this. But there's just you know, I I just some people are bad. <laughs> it's, it's it's okay to say that. I think you're right, Brad. I think it works in the context of the movie. But then, yeah, as soon as you take a step back and think about it in terms of like you know a moral that's trying to be passed on that we can you know apply to our own lives and stuff, that's where it really like just runs into a wall for me because, um, as you mentioned, like over the past few years, they've been it's it's that whole like meet in the middle thing. Yeah, and when one side is like so far, you know, off the edge, then the middle becomes you know, f- way further over in that direction. And that's not where we need to be. So yeah, yeah it, it's that, that metaphor sort of writ large. And I, I had those same exact issues. So I'm glad you said it way better than I could have. So, um, okay. So I, I think that's it for you, Brad, or any closing thoughts on, on Raya? Anything else no, you need to touch on? Uh, it's, it's good. I think it's, I think it's definitely worth watching there. Uh, there's a part of me that almost missed the, the, um, cause there are, there aren't a lot of, Disney animated movies that aren't uh, musicals that have songs in them. And I feel like I missed that a little bit here as much as I did enjoy the movie. Um, and I wonder if it 
would have ended up resonating a little bit more if it if it had that that element to it. But but yeah, still 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 a good movie to to check out. Cool, Jacob. Let's go to you. What have you been watching? I've seen the first episode of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, the new Disney Plus Marvel Cinematic Universe TV show, and the embargo for social reactions was up today. So I'm going to talk about it uh, in very vague terms, as to not spoil it for anybody. I think it's good. It's at first blush a far more standard show than WandaVision was. It's very clearly an MCU show. It has its MCU action, has the MCU banter. There's a sense of sadness to it that I found interesting. It's very much set in the wake of Avengers Endgame. People have, you know, all unblipped. And it's kind of a major plot point that people are having trouble adjusting to being back in the world. And it has a lot of interesting observations about how the world works now. And it has a lot of good character moments for Sam Wilson, the Falcon, and Bucky Barnes, the Winter Soldier. I was not as wonderful by the action. The action feels very boilerplate to me, very, you know, put through the motions Marvel stuff. But I really did enjoy watching these characters get to stand on their own in an episode that's mostly them dealing with their problems. I mean, it's not even a very particularly big action episode. It's a Sam and Bucky have personal stuff going on <laughs> introduction. The ends of the, a big reveal on Cliffhanger, it seems to lurch into the actual action of the series. Uh, but I liked it. Does anybody have any questions <laughs> about the Falcon and the Winter Soldier? Hmm. Where's, I mean, who's I- Mephisto? <laughs> yeah i mean i guess it's it's too early to to in the in the story after just one episode jacob right to like be able to to um sort of uh, project out like where you think the show is going i have an idea but we're not allowed to discuss you know gotcha. plot detail okay. uh, based purely on the people running the show and certain people who are cast, I have, a, I have a very strong idea what the show could actually be about. And if I'm correct, it's interesting. But I'm not going to do that because that's fan theorizing. <laughs> and we saw where fan theorizing took us with WandaVision. It, it can be really, really fun or it can torpedo the whole thing. And uh, so far, Falcon Winter Soldier is so straightforward that I cannot imagine watching this hour of television and being like, here are my 20 fan theories about the series going ahead. Because <laughs> it it's literally a show that says what it means at all times. Uh, and so far, that's been satisfying enough. And I imagine we'll be doing, you know, full breakdown episodes about this show. And like I said, I'll probably be making some speculation and suggestions about what could be happening in the show. But I, I really do think that my goal going forward with Marvel coverage is, to, you know, take it more in stride. Because as much as I enjoyed speculating about WandaVision, I feel like that fueled something a little rotten. And I'm, mm. I'm, I, I, I want to be the, one, the person to tap my brakes on that and be a little more responsible in how I talk about this stuff. I actually have a question, Jake. Yeah. Um, does the show, how does the show look visually? Does it have that same like Walmart parking lot color palette that so many Marvel <laughs> movies have? Because like one of the things I really liked about WandaVision is that it tried to, you know, make itself look interesting. Like how does this show look inter- like visually? I, I, it looks a lot like Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Oh no, that's, <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> uh, however, I will say that Carrie Scoglin, who directs it, uh, she's a t- TV veteran and she uses a lot of interesting close-ups, some handheld camera. It feels very naturalistic in a lot of the dramatic scenes. It feels like it's lit by a lot of natural light. At least that's how it's in- intended to look. And it feels when it's not slam, bam, pow, Marvel action, it feels like a very low key drama in how it's shot. Uh, but yes, it, it 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 has no color in it whatsoever. Oh, that's, that's unfortunate. <laughs> Hopefully, it gets better because that's uh, that's unfortunate. All right, what else have you been watching, Jacob? I can't remember if we discussed this on the show before, 
And if we have, I'll be brief. How we talk about Garth Marenghi's Dark Place on this podcast? This does not sound familiar to me. I've seen it, but I don't think we've talked about it. Okay, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place is a 2004 British show that ran for one season, and it's obscenely brilliant. It is one of the funniest shows I've ever seen. I've revisited it many times over the years. And as far as I can tell, it's not streaming anywhere right now. But someone's uploaded all the episodes on YouTube. So if you want to go YouTube it, it throws a legal option, go nuts. But Garth Marenghi's Dark Place is a is presented as a 1980s horror science fiction fantasy hospital show. That's why that was buried for decades and never never released. And now it's being unearthed and shown for the first time. And it's created by and stars Garth Marenghi, a super hack. Like if Stephen King was a total hack horror writer. And it's presented with talking heads where he's interviewed in modern day about the show. And it cuts between the interviews and the show itself, which is this exacting recreation of truly bad 80s television full of continuity errors and bad acting and weird moments and self-aggrandizing characters. And it's fascinating because so many people in the show are people we've kind of grown to really love. Like Richard Iote is one of the lead characters. He he, he directed the episodes. Uh, Matt Berry from, from the TV version of What We Do in the Shadows is a place of character who's dubbed the entire time. He dubs himself with a voice that does not match his physical performance. <laughs> um, and uh, Matthew Holness, who plays Garth Marenghi, the, the author who created the series, uh, he would later write and direct a horror movie, Possum, which is a really interesting, strange movie. But Garth Marenghi's Dark Place is such a scathing, brilliant deconstruction teardown of 80s television. Uh, and it, it's so exactingly crafted. Like There's so many jokes in every shot that, when I first watched it, it was when they premiered on the Sci-Fi Channel after its British run, and Sci-Fi, those cheeky bastards, sold it as being a long-lost horror show, and it's supposed to have a comedy, and it took me about five minutes of watching the show for me to realize, is this actually a comedy? What's going on? I, I, I legitimately couldn't... Uh, uh, the, the, the recreation of it is so perfect that I was <laughs> fooled for a few minutes until I realized, oh my god, this is absolutely a comedy. Uh, Chris, is Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, all six episodes of it, there are no more than six episodes, as perfect as I think they are? It's it's so good. It's it's one of the, you know, it's one of those great comedies that understands what it's sending up. Like, and it, it understands it in a way that it shows that everyone involved, like, loves the stuff they're making fun of. And that's like, whenever there's something that's a parody, in my mind, in order for the parody to work, the people doing the parody have to actually love what they're making fun of. And I think that's like the key to like this show, like loves these, these hoary horror cliches it's sending up, but it loves that, you know, that cheesy eighties vibe it's sending up. And it does it in a way that's like, I guess respectful is the word (laughs) it's, it's respectful to dumb things. And that's why it works so well. And just like there, there's just so many great, just like sight gags and, and I, I actually I love that it's only six episodes because it, it like it, it never had a chance to run out of steam. It never had a chance to like oh it's spinning its wheels. Like you get everything you want in those six episodes. It's it's so good. It's it's definitely worth worth uh, you know I don't want to condone piracy, but it's definitely worth watching on YouTube because we have no other access to it here. Yeah, and I would really strongly recommend putting the first episode on YouTube, watching the first five minutes. And if you if you watch the opening credits, which come you know a few minutes into the episode. And you're not sold by the theme song and by the montage and opening credits. If you're not cackling at that, turn it off. It's fine. But if you laugh at the opening credits, then Garth Marenghi's Dark Place is for you. 
Okay. I mean, that sounds like it's sort of an interesting, um, uh, like after dinner mint, uh, for WandaVision because of the way that that show, like, you know, recreated <laughs> a specific eras of television and stuff too. So, uh, might be a good thing to, to watch in this, uh, in between period between this and, and Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Um, Jacob, you've been, you've been watching one more thing though, right? One more thing. Uh, who here has seen the 1997 movie Turbulence? I, 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 <laughs> I actually just rewatched this. What is this movie? Ben, you've not seen Turbulence. Oh my well, goodness. I don't know. That's such a, a bland title. I may have seen it. Who's in it? What What, what is it? Okay, Turbulence is a film from 1997 by Robert Butler uh, starring Lauren Hawley as a flight attendant who's just uh, broken up with her fiance uh, right before Christmas. And she's um, going on a flight before Christmas on the same flight with a handful of people on Christmas Eve. They're transporting a serial killer played by Ray Liotta. And would you know it, Ray Liotta escapes. It becomes Die Hard on an airplane where the pilots are dead, where it's flight attendant versus serial killer. Um, also, is- the the plane is decorated for Christmas, which yes. will never, ever happen in real life. But that's like my favorite detail. It is this 90s serial killer thriller. We you know the woman being stalked by a serial killer, but a Die Hard scenario, but also like airport because who ha- who can land the plane? <laughs> it's all this collisions of things it's the, the most 1997 movie you've ever seen it is uh it is very much from the era of post die hard die hard ripoffs uh but it's just far enough away that's trying to do new things while also trying to bring in silence of the lambs or james patterson movies while also just i don't understand this movie or why it exists i don't it's a very it's an incredibly stupid screenplay it's the it if I was a big movie from the '90s to represent the creative drought of the '90s, it would be Turbulence. But streaming on Hulu, and I found it incredibly entertaining to revisit. I have never seen this, but uh, it sounds like you're recommending it. I, I can't tell, Jacob. Look, if Garth Marenghi's Dark Place is about the well, '80s television, then Turbulence feels like a great parody of '90s Hollywood movies. It isn't actually a parody of '90s Hollywood <laughs> movies. It feels so specific to its time. Like it can, o- it could have only been made in America in 1997. Ben. Okay, all right. So that's called Turbulence. It's on Hulu right now. HT, let's go to you. I watched a movie called Ongaku, Our Sound. It's an anime film uh, directed by Kenji Iwasawa uh, in his directorial debut. And uh, it recently just hit PVOD and uh, home video release after making the festival rounds. It's a big festival hit as well as I think it just won, it got nominated for an anime Annie Award. So it's um, definitely more uh, one of the more sort of niche anime films that I've seen um, and one of the more bizarre ones. So this was, it's probably one of the most unique looking anime films I've actually ever seen. It's um, basically uh, a very simple high school comedy about a group of delinquents who suddenly find themselves in possession of a stolen bass guitar and like half a drum set and decide to put together a band and they don't know how to, uh, write or play or read music so they just start playing um and doing like this very basic strumming and they're like this is the this is it this is what we found our our calling in and it's animated with these very simple almost like comic strip style animation looks like something that's like out of a uh 50s newspaper comic strip uh, but it uses a combination of hand-drawn animation and uh rotoscoping so these very simple, flat, comic strip-looking characters against, like, abstract backgrounds that look like they're penciled in are rotoscoped. So they have, like, a weight and real movement to them that is almost a little uncanny. Um, And it really 
explodes in the performance scenes where they actually use um, footage from uh, alternative alternative um, Japanese rock musicians and uh, just animated them playing and uh, it gets it's very wild it's very bizarre and it's really it's a lot of fun it's like this sweet like very simple ode to rock and roll and um it's yeah the, this the plot is kind of nothing it's just there's a lot of uh com- like that kind of comedy where nothing really happens and then and uh it the more comedic situations, I guess, because these high school delinquents are uh, best known for beating up like the local gangsters, but they only really do it when they feel like it kind of thing. Um, but it's it's really unique looking. And um, one of yeah the best uses of rotoscoping in anime, maybe even in animation in recent years that I've seen that doesn't feel like just an experiment. It really adds something and complements the animation style. So um, that's Ongaku, our sound. And um I recommend it. I wrote about it recently on my quarantine stream, so you can also check that out. And where is that streaming issue? Uh, it's on PVOD, so you'll have to. Okay. Gotcha. Yes. Um, so the next thing I watched, the only other thing I watched this week uh, was the Meghan and Harry interview with Oprah. And I felt like I, I needed to sort of give a shout out to this because it was almost a return to event television and that it was one the one thing that everyone was talking about uh when it aired on monday night which felt like such a rare and unusual thing to happen in the streaming age and that was very that was like more exciting to me than the interview itself um but the interview was great like it was just a great showcase for how brilliant of an interviewer oprah is she has like this great empathy and she feels simultaneously like a friend and a detective and a journalist all at once and it's just watching her interview it's like a dance it's great she really knows how to open people up and um and or let things go or to come back to it or when to interrupt yeah she's she's fantastic but the interview itself was really uh fantastic as well because it's i think emily nussbaum uh wrote uh captured this best in that she said it started off as sort of a juicy piece of gossip and ended up becoming something much more distressing because Megan and Harry, who uh, you may know are the former um, Duke and Duchess of, uh, oh, what is Sussex? And Prince Harry uh, is the, the son of uh, Prince Charles, the grandson of uh, Elizabeth II. And uh, he got married Meghan Markle, an American actress uh, from Suits. If Peter was here, he would recognize her. <laughs> Only from Suits, though, so he had no idea about her whole royal affair. Um, but they married a couple years ago. And Wasn't Royal Affair another USA TV show? <laughs> I think so. Probably is. Okay, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> okay. But they got married a couple years ago, and um, they faced this torrent of uh, racist and um, like sexist coverage ever since uh, Megan married into the family. She is the first uh, black woman to ever marry into the royal family, in addition to being a divorcee. So, like two, two things that the royal family is not a fan of. Um, but it's um, it was really just eye opening to see them talk about this candidly uh, in a way that like they would not have been allowed to when they were part of the royal family after they recently stepped back from the royal duties duties to the. Uh, outrage of the British tabloid and me- tabloids and media, and uh, just the the way that they um, describe the parasocial relationship that the crown and the tabloids have uh, was yeah very distressing. And 
uh, a great sort of um, uh, coincidence that I just recently got to The Crown season four, like right as as this happened. And uh, watching The Crown as I have very slowly over the past several months, um, it's become really clear how much of an archaic institution it is and how it goes out of how it hammers out the humanity of these people who may have had good intentions at first, uh, but have become like that part of the monstrous, monstrous part of that system as well. And seeing that unfold in Harry and Meghan's interview was um, really, yeah, interesting and eye-opening in a way that I probably wouldn't have known as much if I hadn't watched The Crown. Great storytelling um, about really terribly flawed people and seeing that play out in Meghan and Harry's interview, and uh, which really acts like a great sequel to The Crown, uh, which will not be covering their their story. Uh, but yeah, it, it was a really interesting collision of scripted TV uh, and uh, events TV that um, I, I don't think I, I, I don't think I've ever seen in a way that that has happened. And it might sound very frivolous right now and very trivial that I'm talking about royal gossip but um you know they are part of they are you know related to the crown the british monarchy which is something that the that uk citizens are highly invested in because that's where their money and their taxes go to and it's part of like this it's it's emblematic of this uh institution that has perpetuated so many racist narratives and racist crimes and violence over however many decades so i think Mm -hmm. even though it does feel like celebrity tabloid fodder now there is a real cultural relevance to it. So that's my my long ramble about the Megan Harry interview. Great interview. Um, really eye-opening stuff. Yeah, no, that's great. And I mean, it sounds like it's it's uh, like worth watching just for the um, the Oprah like journalistic uh, interviewing aspect of it. If for you know, even if you're not interested in like the, the royal stuff at all, just like as a uh, sort of piece of instructive um, interviewing, like tactics and techniques and all that kind of stuff too so that's great uh all right let's go before we get any uh any hard-hitting letters about it the show on usa is called royal pains uh Uh a royal affair is a movie with mads mickelson and alicia vikander so thank you yeah brad i i just looked this up and um i was i was um dodged a bullet there all those (laughs) royal affair fans (laughs) they were gonna be furious so i said royal affair there is a show called royal pains there was also a show on usa at the same time called covert affairs so i i mixed those two things but yes i'm I'm, uh ben you idiot i can't believe you did that i think you're all being very silly because everybody knows that usa tv shows don't actually exist they exist as as tax shells (laughs) nobody actually watches them because they're not real Oh, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful that we've avoided the, uh, the army of bots that probably would have emailed us uh, to correct that mistake. So uh, let's go into what we've been eating. Brad, what have you been eating recently? Um, I recently stumbled upon the new Key Lime M&Ms, um, and they are uh, Key Lime Pie M&Ms, rather. Um, and they're pretty good. So they're, uh, they're white chocolate instead of milk chocolate. Um, and the flavor is, is right on the lime flavor is, uh, it's, it's solid. It's, um, it tastes the same way that lime jello smells, if that makes sense. The lime flavor is, is right there. And even though there's not that extra touch of like, um, the, like the crumbly crust of, of the pie, the shell of the M&Ms kind of makes it so that there's like that little bit of crumble in it, you know? Um, and so they're, they're pretty good. I'm not like a huge 
uh, key lime pie fan in, in general, but uh, but they're they're solid. And I recently learned that there's key lime pie Kit Kat coming, so I'm gonna have to try those as well. I imagine those would probably be even better since it has the wafer to provide that uh, that crumble crust kind mm. of crunch. So I'll, I'm interested mm-hmm. to try that. Um, and then on a similar path, since it's like there's the the Easter and like spring kind of themed candies route, uh, and one of the new things that um, Reese's is offering is uh, Malo Top Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, which um, it's a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup, but the top layer of chocolate of the cup is like a marshmallow flavored cream chocolate, I guess you could say. Um, and so it uh, it adds an, um, an an interesting dynamic to it, where it's it's almost like if you had I guess like a s'more with a Reese's peanut butter cup instead of a Hershey uh, chocolate piece, which if you haven't tried that, you haven't lived because mixing up s'mores and putting different kinds of chocolate on s'mores is a game changer. Um, but yeah, they're not bad. I, I don't think I like them more than regular uh, Reese's peanut butter cups, but they're um, it adds like, I guess, you know, a, a little bit of an Easter touch since there's so many marshmallow things around Easter and I hate peeps. So uh, this is a good way to experience the marshmallow Easter craze and still have something good to go along with it. Um, and then Jacob, I think uh, Reese's peanut butter cups are your favorite candy, right? Like, are you like morally opposed to um, any alteration to the, the Reese's cup formula? A few weeks ago, I would have been morally opposed to these marshmallow ones, but Reese's did Reese did announce a all peanut butter, peanut butter cup. Yeah. With chocolate more peanut butter. And to that, I say nonsense, sir. I will take a thousand marshmallow cups before I am okay with the all <laughs> peanut butter one. Uh, I think that's an act of, it's an act of cultural terrorism to take the chocolate out of peanut butter cup. The marshmallow <laughs> was just a little bit of vandalism. Okay. Fair enough. Um, I also tried uh, Nestle sensations has this new uh, cinnamon toast crunch milk, which it basically tastes like a non-alcoholic, uh rum chata if you've had that alcoholic beverage before and so it's um it's the mixture is like is a little bit more even i guess you could say as opposed to like if you had just cinnamon toast crunch in your milk which makes your milk you know taste like cinnamon toast crunch um so the flavor is a little bit more um thoroughly spread throughout throughout the milk and because it's 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 essentially like i guess like a melted down milkshake would be the best description of the texture because um, I'm pretty sure, I don't know if it's whole milk or if it's, if it's 2% milk that they use for that, but, uh, you know, if, if you like cinnamon, uh, flavored kinds of things, uh, it's, it's very, uh, very good. And then, um, I, I keep finding cool stuff at, at Aldi's. Um, they, they have these like thing that they do called Aldi favorite finds where they have stuff that's like available only for a limited time. And like, once it's gone, it's gone. And sometimes it'll come back around like months later or something like that. But they have these new uh, pita puffs that are flavored like pepperoni pizza or cheese pizza. Um, it's from their Clancy's brand of, of snacks. They have like it's basically like a generic version that where they release a bunch of different kinds of chips under that brand. Um, and I, I normally don't go out of my way to tr- have, get like pita chips or pita puffs unless like they they are used for dipping in other things. Um, but these are pretty good. They're they're essentially they taste like combos, the, the pizza combos, but just without the that savory pizza flavored filling inside of it. Um, I actually think that the cheese pizza ones taste more like uh, the the pizza flavor than the pepperoni ones. I don't know if it's just because there's not as much seasoning on the pepperoni ones because they don't look like they're quite covered as well as the cheese pizza ones. Um, But it's, they're the the kind of thing too, where it doesn't really taste like pizza. It just tastes vaguely like the, like pizza 
sauce seasoning essentially um which mm. is you know if, if you've ever had pepperoni pizza combos or the supreme pizza combos then you know exactly what i'm talking about um but they're 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 not bad i think that um i haven't tried this yet but i would like to like find something to, to dip them in whether it's like marinara sauce or like a cheese dip or something like that i think they'd be pretty good Okay. All right. I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find this show published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features that you can find at SlashFilm.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns, and mailbag topics. I think we're empty in the mailbag topics uh, department. So please send those in to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening. And we will talk to you all on Monday. Hey, Ben, before we go, I, I can't hit stop in the podcast because I have the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery, sharp retorts for posts, costly quips, and impolite put downs by Louis A. Safian. Guess, you know, Ben, if you can guess within 10 pages, <laughs> which page have opened it to? I will close this book. We will not do this segment today. Page 39, Jacob. No, page 168. <sighs> uh, the political acrobats section. The oh, political lovely. acrobats. <laughs> ben, that guy, he's full of promises that go in one year and out the other. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Brad, he stands for what he thinks people will fall for. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Chris. Honesty is his policy. When he's bought, he stays bought. Uh. <laughs> and HT, she has three hats. One to cover her head, one that she tosses in the ring, and one that she talks through. Ah. Oh. <laughs> uh, Jacob, do one for yourself, and then we'll wrap it up. I mean, why should I? I mean, to me, politics is a game with two sides and a fence. Hmm. I regret asking for one more. <laughs> well, Ben, you never keep your fences so high as you can't straddle them. Okay. All right. <laughs>